turn to Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 48. This is a long passage, and so I've done my best to shorten the message as much as I can. So I think this is one of the shorter messages. So relax, relax and, um, and try to listen to the word of God because this is God's word. And whatever I preach should be based on the word of God. So you should be able to receive God's blessing just by hearing his word. So Judges chapter 20 verses 1 through 48, this is God's word. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the, Lord, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she's dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men of a hundred throughout the all tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah, Benjamin, for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through, a, through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us? to fight against the people of Benjamin. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them in Gibeah, at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day, and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. 
They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the, of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves up in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Mare Gibeah. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites, Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men of ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush, ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned back their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them and those who came out of the cities were destroyed destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidom, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness of the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon four months. And the man of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Amen. This is a long story, 48 verses. Why is this story getting so much coverage compared to other stories? Well, it is an all-out civil war in Israel. This book, which began with the tribe of Israel going out to war with the Canaanites, which incidentally began with God's instruction for the tribe of Judah to go first, ends with all the tribes of Israel going to war against their own, one of their own tribes. 
which, in which the tribe of Judah was chosen again to lead the battle. The theme of Israel's vicious cycle of idolatry and their downward spiral into deeper spiritual degeneration have come down to this. Instead of fighting their own enemies, the Gentile enemies, they are fighting themselves. That's one of the reasons why this story is getting so much coverage. Even though this story is very long, it boils down to two main ideas, national unity and tribal loyalty. Israel's unity in this story is impressive. Three times we see the expression, as one man. Israel acted as one man. This expression occurred only once before in 616, but it was not about Israel's unity. It was about how Gideon would destroy the Midianites as one man. Now, all of a sudden, we have Israel's unity described in this way three times. Israel gathered at Mitzpah as one man, outraged by the gruesome sight of the concubines' mutilated body parts. And they arose as one man in their resolve to punish the worthless fellows at Gibeah. And they gathered at Gibeah as one man to launch their attack. Benjamin's loyalty to one another is admirable too. They were vastly outnumbered. It was their tribe versus 11 other tribes. But Benjamin did not back down. They stood firmly with their tribesmen. No Benjaminite left behind. But these admiral qualities are clashing with each other in this story, resulting in a bloody civil war. Why? This story is a good example of the danger of absolutizing any one virtue. It is quite similar to what we say about the strengths and weaknesses of our personality traits. Often, our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses, and vice versa. Your strength may be thoughtfulness, but that thoughtfulness may hinder you from being decisive when you have to make an important decision. Unity is a good thing, but at any costs? What if you have to compromise truth and justice to keep the unity? Loyalty is an admirable quality. But what about the danger of blind loyalty? A loyalty that has no moral compass, such as the sworn loyalty among gang members. Our virtues have to be grounded in something greater than themselves. So we'll examine the national unity of Israel and Benjamin's tribal loyalty. And we will see that there are flaws in these virtues which we share. And we will turn to Christ as our perfect redeemer. Consider Israel's unity in this story. This is the only time we see Israel united as one man for action. When Gideon defeated the Midianites, the Ephraimites came against him with grievances, chapter 8-1. When Jephthah defeated the Ammonites, the Ephraimites came out again with grievances, grievances, but this time against Jephthah, 
with weapons, threatening to burn down his house with fire, 12.1. And do you also remember how the people of Judah bound Samson, God's appointed judge, and handed him over to the Philistines, their enemies? But this time, Israel is united as one man. And it seems like they were united as one man for the right cause, righteous anger. Something horrible took place in Israel, something that should never happen among the people of God. The Levite called it abomination and outrage in Israel. So the people of Israel demanded the tribe of Benjamin to hand over those who committed this horrible act. Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. Verse 13. When Benjamin refused, the people of Israel did not just go to battle. They did the right thing by asking the Lord who should lead the charge. The Lord appointed the tribe of Judah and they presumably led the charge. Then something disturbing and strange happened. The people of Israel were soundly beaten twice, even, they, even though they went up against Benjamin with God's approval. And their casualties totaled 40,000 men. How can this be? They were dumbfounded. Weren't they doing the right thing? Didn't God give them His approval? Wasn't that a clear assurance that he was on their side and victory would be theirs? After the first defeat, they wept before the Lord until the evening. After the second defeat, they wept and fasted and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. Have you ever felt bewildered by God's dealings with you like that? You're sure you are doing the right thing. And you're sure you're doing it for the glory of God. But instead of success, you experience failure. Instead of encouragement from others, you face criticisms from others. What do you do? It may make you wonder whether you are indeed doing the right thing. That's what happened with the Israelites. When they asked the Lord the first time, they said, Who shall go first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? Compare that with the second time they asked. Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? You can see how much more confident they were the first time around. But what about the third time? Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? Or shall we cease? At this point, they are not sure whether they should go on. What happened to their original conviction that they were doing the right thing and they had to do this thing to purge Israel of the evil that was done? Well, this should pose less of a problem for us who are under the new covenant. Because Jesus already told us, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul reinforced the idea, saying, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Why? Because we no longer belong to Israel, but to the church of Jesus Christ. You see, Israel was an earthly representation of the kingdom of heaven. 
its glory was shown in earthly terms. The inheritance of the land, material wealth, abundant produce, military victory, and on and on. But the church is entrusted with the keys of the kingdom, not with the sword. Church's glory is more spiritual than material, more heavenly than earthly. So Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have heavenly treasures in earthen vessels of clay. So we expect opposition and setbacks when, even when we do the work of God. When Paul was getting ready to go to Jerusalem, Agabus prophesied that he would be arrested and handed over to the Romans. Other people took this as a sign from God that Paul should not go. Don't go, Paul, because you're going to get arrested and you're going to go through a lot of suffering. But Paul took this as God, preparing him for the difficulty of his upcoming ministry. Why? Because when Jesus called him, he already told him how much he had to suffer for his sake. When we do the right thing, we should persevere through obstacles and setbacks, setbacks especially in the, under the new covenant. But the Israelites were under a different environment. They expected God's approval to give them victory, especially when they were doing the right thing. And that is what the law of Moses promised to them. So what was going on at the battle of Gibeah? Why the defeat? There are many similarities between this battle and the battle of Ai. Do you remember? That was the second battle they fought in the land of Canaan after the battle at Jericho. In the battle of Ai, Israel was initially defeated unexpectedly as the Israel at Gibeah. And also the same military tactic was used in both battles to finally defeat the enemies. Why was Israel defeated at Ai? Because of Achan's sin. He stole the things that were devoted to destruction. Younger, the commentator suggests that at Gibeah, Israel's sin was their hastiness in relying on just one witness against God's strict requirement of two or three witnesses. They just bought whatever the Levite said and they relied on just one witness rather than requiring two, one or two more witnesses. But the only problem with that is that God would eventually grant them victory even though Levite was not punished as Achan was punished. But I'd like you to know that there is another curious pattern we see in the Bible. Remember what happened to Moses on his way back to Egypt? He was on his way to carry out God's commission to deliver Israel by punishing Egypt. Do you, do you remember the interaction between God and Moses? God told him to go. Moses said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. There was this whole thing for almost two chapters. And finally, Moses agreed to go. But now that Moses was going according to God's command, what happens to him? God met him and sought to put him to death. 
And God relented only after his son was circumcised by his wife. Something similar happened with Joshua right before Israel crossed the Jordan River to conquer the promised land. Remember the captain of the host of the Lord appeared to him with his sword drawn? That means he was about to fight. That's not a sign of peace. And he commanded Joshua to take off his sandals because he was standing in, on a holy ground. And there's also what happened to Balaam when he was on his way to Balak who asked him to come and curse Israel. Even though God gave him the permission to go, Balaam saw, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road again with his sword drawn, ready to kill Balaam. What is this? God commanding or giving permission to go and when they actually obey, God meets them with the sword drawn, almost to kill them? What is God doing there? One obvious reason is to put people in their own place, especially before God uses them as his instrument of judgment. These incidents show them that they were sinners too, not better and not much different from the ones that they were about to punish on God's behalf. There is a place for righteous, righteous anger. Let me say that again. There's a place for righteous anger. But there is no place for pride. Just because you're offended doesn't mean that you are right. And just because your anger is righteous doesn't mean you are better than other people. We all have blind spots. We can be easily provoked to anger by the little specks in other people's eyes while we ignore the log in our own eyes. Our pride makes our righteous anger cruel and poisonous. Remember God used Babylon to punish Judah, his own people. And God even called Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, his servant. But God punished Babylon because of her pride. I know from my own experience how difficult it is to keep my righteous anger from my pride. When I feel like I have the righteous anger, I'm more proud. But I also know how my pride spoils everything. I become cruel and merciless. My pride taints and defiles something good, the righteous anger that I feel against evil. So when I, even when I give good and sound advice, when I do it with pride, it tastes like poison to those people who hear my advice because of my pride. Israel was united as one man by their righteous anger against the abomination committed by the men of Gibeah. But you see, Israel had to be humbled first. They had to learn that they could not do the right thing on their own despite their greater number. They had to learn to depend on God and do it for God. Not because they thought they were better people than other people. 
Now, Benjamin, loyalty is a great virtue. Fairweather friends are everywhere. When you're doing great, they flock to you. They're full of admiration and praise. They treat you like you're the greatest thing that walk, ever walked on the face of the earth. They want to get to know you. They want to see if there's anything, anything at all that they can do to help you. But the moment you fall, the moment you make a mistake, they're gone. Even worse, they're on the front lines with the stones of jeer and condemnation through, to throw at you without mercy. Loyal friends are rare to find. When fairweather friends flock to you, you don't even know they are there. But they show up when everybody else leaves you. Others forget 100 good things you have done for them and only remember the one thing you did wrong and they cancel you. But loyal friends never forget one thing good you did for them and they stand by you even when you fall. It is the greatest, one of the greatest blessings to have a royal, loyal friend, is it not? Loyalty is a great virtue, but blind loyalty is not. Benjamin's tribal loyalty is a classic example of blind loyalty. It is impressive standing up to the other 11 tribes for their fellow tribe, tribesmen, willing to sacrifice their lives for their tribesmen. But we find their tribal loyalty fatally flawed. It shows us that loyalty that is unhinged, loyalty that is not rooted in goodness and righteousness is dangerous. They must have received a part of the concubine's mutila mutilated body. And with it, they must have received an account of what happened. That's why they did not come to the National Assembly and mitzvah. They knew it was against their tribesmen. And they knew what happened. They knew what the people of Gibeah did. Yet they chose to side with the worthless fellows in Gibeah. What should the Benjaminites have done? They were loyal tribesmen. But as Jews, their first loyalty was to God, not to their fellow Benjaminites. But the question is, could they remain loyal to their tribesmen without forsaking their loyalty to God? Of course. In fact, they could not. They could not be truly loyal to their tribesmen if they were not first loyal to Yahweh. Let me say that again. They could not be truly loyal to their tribesmen unless they were first loyal to Yahweh. How is that the case? What is assumed when, you, when we make a, a pledge of loyalty to someone? That our loyalty will be to his benefit. 
The tricky thing is what it's meant by his benefit. Is it what he happens to want at that moment? What if he wants illegal drugs which are destroying his life? Then should his benefit mean what you think is beneficial to him? That's problematic too, isn't it? What makes you a better judge of what is really beneficial to him? The case about illegal drugs may be easy, but what about more complicated issues? One of my friends who was a wedding coordinator quit her job after seeing the horrible things that are happening between the in-laws, the parents of the bride and the parents of the bridegroom. Parents who think that they know what is best for their kids and refuse to back down. And the kids doing the same thing. Who's more right? Maybe the idea of his benefit should be tied to a more objective standard of good. But what can that be? What could that be except God and his law? So what was the most loving and loyal thing that the Benjaminites could have done for the Gibeonites, Gibeonites without being disloyal to God? Rather than standing with them and fighting with the other tribes, they, have, they should have urged the men of Gibeah to confess their sins before God and ask for God's mercy. God might have done what he did with David when he took the census against God's command. God might have given them different options of punishment to choose from. Or God might have done what he did with the Ninevites, the Assyrians, who, upon hearing Jonah's message of coming, coming doom, cried out to God in repentance, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And amazingly, God did relent when they repented and cried out to him, and he spared them of his wrath. We are so afraid of temporal punishment, and we try to avoid them at all costs. But we must seek the good that is eternal. The good that is eternal may come with temporary pain. But if we truly love someone, if we are truly loyal, we should direct them to what is eternally good, not temporarily pleasing. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our true loyal friend, isn't he? His loyalty to us was not blind loyalty. He knew all our failures and sins, but he did not deny them or ignore them as the Benjaminites did. He actually exposed our sins. He brought our sins to our attention as nobody could or dared to do. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. What he said about God's true standard regarding murder and adultery and hypocrisy. And what he said about how evil our anger and our angry words and our lust truly are. But you see, he did not do this to condemn us or justify himself for abandoning us. 
Remember what Jesus did with Peter after his resurrection. He asked Peter, Do you love me? Three times. Why? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. And he did this to expose Peter's sin. But Jesus did this also to restore him and renew his calling. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, he said. And that is grace, isn't it? It's the light that pierces through you to the darkest hidden place. It knows your deepest secrets, but it never looks away. It's the gentle hand that pulls you from the judgment of the crowd when you stand before them guilty and you've got no way out. But to offer us that grace, justly and righteously, Jesus had to go all the way to the cross and lay down his life. People expose your guilt and secret to humiliate you and punish you in some way. But Jesus did it to take upon himself all of our guilt and endure the full wrath of God in our place. By his sacrifice, he remained loyal to his holy God, giving him glory. And he remained loyal to his sinful people, giving them salvation. By his sacrifice, he remained loyal to the holy God, giving him glory. And he remained loyal to his sinful people, giving him salvation. In Jesus Christ, God and sinners are reconciled, united. Righteousness and mercy kiss each other. And selfish and self-righteous sinners are joined together in humility and mutual love. Such a loyal friend deserves our loyalty, does he not? Our loyalty to him should trump our loyalty to all others. We should not worry that this would lead to some kind of blind loyalty, fanaticism, or bigotry. You see, when our loyalty to others is not anchored in our loyalty to Christ, it will be unhinged and blindsided as Benjamin's tribal loyalty was, leading to tragic consequences. Because of what Christ has done, we do not cancel others and abandon them the moment they make a mistake. We stick with them, especially with our fellow Christians because of Jesus' loyalty to us. But it is not by denying or excusing other people's sins, but by addressing their sins and calling them to repentance that we show our loyalty. And we do this in humility. Righteous anger is good. It is right to get angry at sin and evil. It is wrong to tolerate evil. But pride turns it into poison, while humility turns our righteous anger into healing balm, into a healing balm. And Jesus, through his humility, took away all of our reason for holding on to our pride.
because he humbled himself. Even as the Son of God, he humbled himself to the point of laying down his life and being crucified on the cross in all kinds of shame and humiliation for our sake. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a beautiful community Christ is inviting us into. We have a unity which cannot be destroyed because we are bound by something greater than ourselves, outside of ourselves. The blood of Jesus Christ. As Christ is to us, let us be loyal friends to one another, building one another up in righteousness and holiness with Christ's patience and steadfast love. Let us start with our brothers and sisters in this church and let us extend the love of Jesus Christ to whoever God brings into our lives so that they may see the beauty of our unity but also the beauty of true loyalty. Loyalty that is not grounded in other people who are fallible, who do wrong things, but the loyalty that is grounded in the truth of God. The loyalty that is grounded in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us all pray together. O oh Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for this time. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our true loyal friend who does not spoil us with his indiscriminate love and blind loyalty, but who redeems us and restores us and makes us good and holy by his true loyalty, grounded in the truth and the love of God. O oh Lord, all of us sometimes feel utterly alone and lonely. We know the blessing of a loving community, loyal friends who can accept us, minister to us, encourage us, and build us up with the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a community here, not because we are good, but because this is your church. Oh, Lord, would you touch us deeply with the security of having your loyalty to us. And in that security, help us, Lord, to venture out to love others deeply, to minister to them, to stick with them, to show the love of Christ to them, especially when they are in need. Until that day when we shall join together in that glorious throng in heaven, when perfect love will prevail. The perfect love of God received by your people and reflected by your people to one another. We long for that day and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.